I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This is the Ancient Way session and Sunday program. Uh, talk for day three, all the lost and the left behind. Welcome to those who are joining us for the Sunday morning public program. So Great Vow is in the midst of a 10-day silent meditation retreat, which we call Sashin. And this 10-day uh, Sashin is our most rigorous meditation retreat of the year. We aspire like we always do, but the schedule really supports us in the aspiration to practice around-the-clock awareness. Really sitting into the vow to awaken for the benefit of all beings. May all beings everywhere throughout space and time know the true causes of happiness and be free from suffering. In Sashin, we make what might appear to modern middle-class Americans significant renunciation, getting less sleep, agreeing not to read or write or engage in regular social niceties, like saying hello and making eye contact and asking, how are you doing today? We practice noble silence, refrain from media use of any kind, and submit ourselves to the monastic, monastic schedule of formal meals, zazen, chanting, service, walking meditation, body practice, and work meditation. All in the service of our vows for awakening. Awakening awakening that we speak of in the Zen tradition is an inclusive awakening. Awakening is not a state, but an ongoing practice. Dogen Zenji uses phrase, practice awakening. One thing. We wake up awakened to both what is most true to the nature of experience the nature of self, world, the nature of beingness. And we wake up to the nature of suffering, how suffering happens, its causes and effects, how it rises, our particular favorite suffering hits. One of the oft-quoted phrases of the Buddha is, I teach suffering and the freedom from suffering. I teach suffering and the freedom from suffering. Sashin meditation practice, Zen practice, gives us the opportunity to study suffering and freedom from suffering. One of the elements of Sashin practice, for those of you who've never practiced Sashin with us, is the wisdom of no escape. 
once you agree to following the schedule and being here, you are left in a sense alone with your mind for days, hours, minutes, alone with your mind and alone together, supported by the community, the schedule, the teachers. But we're really with ourselves, embodied with our minds, mental habits, emotional afflictions, zazen period after zazen period, breath by breath, step by step, eating, sleeping, working, with nothing to do but to pay attention. And in that process, we begin to see what we're made of, what and who we are. The Buddha gave this teaching called the Three Marks of Existence, fundamental uh, teaching of Buddhism, which we are invited to investigate in our direct experience. That each experience we have Each experience that arises, that happens, contains, is marked by these three elements. Suffering, liberation, is not separate from suffering. So suffering and liberation are one. But suffering, impermanence, which is a constant flux experience, when we really look, is fleeting, never really lands, is ungraspable. The moment we become aware of it, it's gone. It's changing. It's transformed into something new. Something fresh is happening, and then that too is changing. Nothing ever concretizes. That's the teaching of impermanence, observable in our own experience, observable of every, everything that arises. And then non-self, there's no one watching that experience happen. Experience doesn't belong to anyone. There's no doer. It is happening. The sense of self, it appears. It's a momentary happening. It doesn't refer to anyone or anything. So yesterday during the Dharma talk, Hogan Roshi talked some, pointed out for us the nature of impermanence and non-self. So today I wanted to focus more on suffering. The Buddha didn't say we are destined to suffer. They just simply pointed out that if we cling to an idea that things should last longer than a single instant, if we try to hold on to the positive states of mind, ideas, conclusions, beliefs, there is suffering, there is friction. For we are going against the nature of reality. And that going against the nature of reality causes friction, dukkha. Dukkha is a Pali 
in Sanskrit word that is translated as suffering in English. It's also translated as dis-ease, friction, dissatisfaction. I um, had heard about the etymology of dukkha over many periods of time, but I decided to look it up again. And this is from Sargent. The subtle nature of the experience of dukkha can be understood further from its etymology. This is um, an explanation of the historical roots of dukkha and its antonym, sukha. It is perhaps amusing to note the etymology of the words sukha, pleasure, comfort, bliss, and dukkha, misery, unhappiness, pain. The ancient Aryans who brought the Sanskrit language to India were nomadic horse and cattle breeding people who traveled in horse and ox drawn vehicles. Su and dus are prefixes indicating good and bad. The word ka in later Sanskrit meaning sky, ether, or space was originally the word for whole, the H-O-L-E. Particularly an axle hole of one of the Aryans' vehicles. Thus, sukha meant originally having a good axle hole, while dukkha meant having a poor axle hole, leading to discomfort. Being out of sync with the way things are is like having a poor axle hole on your cart. It hurts unnecessarily so. To understand or undertake the spiritual path is to turn toward suffering. You know, so often in my experience, I try to avoid discomfort, avoid having a bad axle hole, avoid all the ways that my life has friction. Avoid, go numb, distract myself, try to find something better. But in spiritual practice, we know that that doesn't really actually lead to happiness. The trying to push away unpleasurable things (laughs) or discomfort, um, trying to seek comfort, pleasure, or going numb. It doesn't really lead to liberation. And so the path is through suffering, is through investigating, understanding this friction. And in so doing, that is where liberation is found. Which is like, yay, you're having a hard sashin, that's great. Because then you're actually having the opportunity to look at what causes friction in your life. If you come to Sashin and just kind of coast along and then go back into your life without any real um, insight into the nature of suffering, somehow managing to avoid that, then 
you know, the deeper levels of freedom that are revealed through the, the path of meditation are missed. And we continue those habits that create suffering for ourselves and others in all of our relationships. So to this sashin, we've been focusing on concentration, a fundamental uh, aspect of Buddhist practice. The ability to gather attention and let it rest in present moment experience. Because it's hard to, if not impossible, to really investigate the nature of suffering, the nature of experience, if the mind is just constantly jumping from one thing to one thing to one thing to one thing, and we can't really stay with experience. Because in order to look into it, we need to be able to, at least for some periods of time, rest, stay with. So as our support, as working with concentration, sometimes you practice with support. And since we're just beginning this session, we've been talking about and practicing uh, concentration with support and the support being the hands or the breath or body sensations or whatever method that you're doing and we've emphasized and I'm just saying this for um, the sake of everyone in this room and also to catch people up at home we've emphasized that there is no better practice So whatever practice you are doing is good. Stay with it and it will open up. As the mind concentrates, one of the side effects of concentration of gathering attention and placing it in present moment experience and then coming back and coming back and coming back. And we do that over and over and over again, 10 hours a day in the Zendo, who knows how much else you're doing it throughout the day, hopefully lots. As the mind begins to, that power of concentration begins to develop, we begin to relax, to soften. We begin to let down or shed some of that armor that we've been wearing to protect ourselves from the world. And we become more open, more simple. And that process can be scary we are used to having experience mediated by thoughts. And so when the thinking mind, when thoughts are less full-blown, less about, oh, what I did 20 years ago, what I'm going to do 10 years from now, and da-da-da, just stirring over the day-to-day, when, when that begins to settle down, yeah, so probably we're still having mental content. <laughs> There's many layers and levels to, to mental activity. But when that push and pull and churning begins to settle down, the, the vividness, the depth, the beauty, the intensity, the mystery of life is experienced more deeply. It's, it's not filtered through that veil. And this can be um, exciting <laughs> And a little terrifying for the part of us that wants to be in control, wants to know what's going on, wants to have everything in a box, wants to plan ahead. 
And so we tend to oscillate. We oscillate between openness, openness happens, and then something in us gets nervous, and so we close back down and get lost in thought for a little bit and then come back, gather attention, feel the hands, let the hands feel themselves, and settle back into concentration for a while. I remember when Dan Brown was here, um, he's a Vajrayana teacher, teacher of the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions. And he was here teaching us um, a seminar on concentration. And he remarked that the deepening of concentration is a process, which is really helpful to remember. It's a process, it has stages. He was actually teaching us the nine stages of this method called the elephant path that talks about the stages of concentration. And one of them he was pointing at is um, a part, a process of concentration is we might start having longer periods of absorption with the object of concentration, i.e. the hands, body, breath, and also simultaneously longer periods of distraction. So those that is part of the process. Those go together sometimes for some people. We can think, oh, my concentration isn't good because I'm having periods still of distraction. But part of the process of concentration is having periods of concentration and periods of distraction. And I'm saying that for the part of us, because that was an important thing for me to hear, the part of us that thinks we should be able to go from zero to 100 in an instant know that this may happen and you know continuing to apply the method when you notice oh i've been in a daydream for a few minutes he also used this analogy of the fuzzy bunny which is part of the elephant path of when and i think this is goes along with getting lost in distraction but also concentration deepening is um it starts to feel good like the, the benefits of concentration, which are relaxation and openness and calm and, and a more spacious mind, it starts to feel good. And then we kind of like lean into those good feelings and lose the intensity or the alertness of the concentration practice, the method. And then we're kind of daydreaming in, in thoughts without really noticing. And so when that, phenomena is happening, the, the remedy is to come back, of course, to present moment experience to the method and then intensify concentration, brighten the minds, uh, highlight the alertness, turn up the alertness dial. So I want to come back to the investigation of suffering. Mystics and contemplatives and shamans have been mapping the territory of the mind probably for as long as human beings have been engaging in this investigation into mind. And all the maps include warnings about potential pitfalls on the path, as well as states of mind to be aware of. In the Christian mystic tradition, the Desert Fathers had the seven deadly sins, and these describe states of mind that they encountered while engaging in contemplative practice. And in the Buddhist tradition, we have the five hindrances, and we also have the teaching of the six realms. 
And these are particular areas of suffering displayed in the human heart that we can come to recognize in our own experience. A part of the path is the investigation of suffering. Suffering arises due to clinging. That's the second noble truth. Wanting things to be different than they are, grasping at fleeting states of mind. And as we gather attention and open the mind, let go of surface-level confusion, more subtle states of suffering and disease are given space to arise, to be seen more clearly. Fixed or limiting beliefs about ourselves and the world, energetic complexes, Aspects of the body-mind that are often operating under the surface, keeping us busy, distracted, judgmental, anxious, etc. A teaching like the Six Realms is another map. It's pointing to the territory of the heart. And by pointing this out, the intention is that if and when you encounter these emotional and mental states, you can recognize them accept them, welcome their presence, and apply the practice. I find a map like this helps me objectify uh, these mental and emotional states that have such a strong habit energy around being me, my suffering, my anger, my guilt, my shame, and to appreciate them more as autonomous forces or energy that arises in experience that might have nothing to do with me. And that allows me to get some space from the content and to appreciate, oh, ah, this too, this too is changing, is flickering, is impermanent. This too is empty, is spacious, is non-self. So the six realms are as follows. We have the hell realm, which is often associated with anger, rage, conceit, hate, the hell of separation, of setting oneself apart from others, from the world through judgment, through anger, through blame, through hate, and turning others into an object. This realm can also be turned onto ourselves, the inner enemy or the inner critic, bringing the experience of an inner rift of self-hate. Next realm is the realm of the hungry ghost, depicted in Buddhist mythology as this being with a very large belly and a very small, tiny throat. It's said they're unable to take in nourishment. Everything they put into their mouth turns to fire and burns. So it's an experience of constant craving. And this realm is often associated with craving, unsatiated desire, wanting, dissatisfaction, seeking, always wanting something else out there, the next experience, next pleasurable thing, new relationship, work, new work, sex, food. And Sashin, I can sometimes detect this inner feeling of lack, like, All my mind is saying is, I want, I want, I want, I want. It's like, I want something else, something else, something else. 
And then we have the animal realm, um, which is associated with ignorance and basic fear, like literally the realm of, of the animals. And animals are quite like human beings. So this is one that we are probably all familiar with, although we're probably all familiar with all of them. And it's that movement of trying to get comfortable, safe, motivated by instincts, on alert, fear based in ignorance, refers to the inability to self-reflect, to recognize the fleeting nature of experience and non-self. So it's always in self-preservation mode, fear of death, fear of new experiences. And then we have the human realm said the human realm, it's possible to awaken in all of these realms. There's a Buddha in every realm. But the human realm is perhaps the easiest because there's just the right amount of awareness and suffering. The human realm is motivated by hope and fear and other such dualities. Like You can feel into the hope, the hope I will get enlightened. The fear then is I will fail. The hope I will get a promotion, the fear is then I will lose out. The hope is, hope is a near enemy of aspiration. Aspiration extends beyond the self. We, when we aspire to awaken, then we take on awakening as our practice. And we're not so much attached to a particular outcome because any situation, any moment is folded into our aspiration. When we hope to awaken, we are stuck in this place of always fearing that we don't have the right practice, the right setting, the right place. And so we're moving on this human, very human realm of hope, fear, hope, fear. And other polarities work just like that, like the good, I want good experiences, I don't want bad experiences. So I keep orienting my life towards trying to have more good experiences and not have bad experiences or wanting pleasure and fearing pain or wanting contentment and fearing discontentment. And then we have the jealous God or power God realm. When we get caught in envy or comparison or jealousy, looking around at others through that mind of, oh, they're better than me, they're better than than me, they have a better meditation posture, they have a better hairstyle, they're um, so calm, they walk so quietly, they chant so rigorously or vigorously, they, you know, whatever we want, (laughs) we project it onto others and assume that they're having an easy time or whatever. And then the last is the deva realm. And here is a place of arrogance, pride, the I know mind, the I know, I know, I know, I know. I know that already. I understand I'm better than. As you can see, these all are very familiar states of mind and emotion that we all pass through continuously throughout our lives, throughout a day, throughout a meditation session. And in Sashin, we have this opportunity, instead of being pulled through these realms kind of blindly, not really even realizing it, we can observe and and actually become familiar with the, the suffering in each realm and 
potentially, hopefully, the liberation in each realm. So the realms themselves are not inherently suffering. It's when we cling to, identify with, grasp a hold of a state of mind or belief associated with with the realm, just like with any thought. Once we recognize we're thinking, we come back to presence, anchor in attention, feel the hands, breath, similarly. But sometimes what happens is a thought arises and it generates a strong emotional response. And the emotional response is so intense that we react to that and seem to bring in more thoughts and memories that are associated with that original thought that are associated with that feeling and then more feelings get triggered and then we think about or more thoughts get pulled in and then more feelings and we're suddenly spinning around in this chaotic deluge of thoughts and emotion and it's hard to find our way. So the practice here is to shift from the thinking mind into the feeling in the body of the emotional reaction, feeling it directly in the body. So when you notice that there's that, and you can notice it on a more subtle level, like a thought appears and there's emotional reaction, and that's, and that's it. Maybe you're not feeding, feeding, feeding the thought, but there is often a tendency to feed the thought. And so we always say, well, what does it feel like in the body? What happens if you come into the embodied experience and let yourself presence and come into the feelings in the body and include those feelings in your awareness? Research, recent research by Jill Bolt Taylor, a neuro biologist says that the physical emotional response to a belief or a thought will last 90 seconds if we don't continue to feed the thoughts with more thoughts and feel the body and instead feel the body directly 90 seconds so that's a long relatively long time and also a really short time Often, though, we don't want to feel the emotions or the physical sensations because they're unpleasant or intense, or we've just been so habituated not to feel them um, that we just habitually keep entertaining the thinking mind. So it's something as teachers we invite over and over again, well, what is it like to feel the body? What is it like to feel the body, to step back from the thinking mind, the story, And it's hard to do. It's hard to step back from the thinking mind. The thinking mind is tricky. Thoughts are sticky. Um, So sometimes it can be helpful to label the thought, oh, that's anxiety. And then you get, you know, in doing that, you get to step back into awareness and you have some space from the the churning of thoughts. This is anxiety. This is worry. This is judgment. And then to feel the sensations in the body. Or simply to bring curiosity to embodied experience. I wonder how the body feels right now. Being in embodied experience directly, staying with it by staying curious with kind investigation. And then, and then as you're in embodied experience, taking off the label and feeling directly 
what, like I said, with kind investigation, what does this thing I'm calling anxiety feel like? What does this thing I'm calling anger feel like? Does it have tension? Does it have a location in the body? Is there tension? Is there movement? Does it have a color, a shape? Can you isolate it as a single sensation or is it a collection of sensations? And how long does a single sensation or the collection of those sensations last? Does it come or go? Is there space? Is there liveliness in this sensation? Can you rest in the, the space that is hosting this experience? The all-inclusive space of awareness. During the month of October, we chant the chant of the hungry ghosts every day. Um, We chant it before morning work practice. And so those of you who are participating in this sashin online haven't heard yet the hungry ghost chant, so I thought we could sing it. Can you get the microphone? It's on page 79 in the chant book. So if people need a chant book, can you please pass out chant books? And we're going to do it a cappella, right? Which I think we can do. to get to share that um, chant with you. It's called the Conroe Mon. And um, we, every year at the monastery, at the end of October, we do a ceremony um, that really honors that part of ourselves, the hungry ghost, the hungry spirit, that part that wants, 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 by calling it in and, and offering it food, the nourishment of the Dharma. In a way, it's a way of honoring welcoming, turning towards apparent suffering, and then investigating with kindness, and then resting in mind's nature. I think that chant really sums up this practice of welcoming the, um, if you call it the six realms, the afflictive emotions, whatever is arising in spiritual practice in sashin that feels like you don't want it. It feels like suffering. It's like, oh, actually, the way is to turn toward suffering with curiosity, with kind investigation. What is this made of? In a way, it's feeding it with our attention, not feeding the thoughts, but feeding the experience, the direct experience of this thing we're calling suffering. And just like right by doing that, by turning attention towards what we call suffering, we're like taking off that label because like the label suffering is often like, no, don't want that. And taking off that label and then just being with the nature of experience, which if, 
if we really look into the nature of experience, we discover the flickering inconstancy, changing, fleeting nature and space. Like literally a dance of light and space. I can't say I always remember to do this. That's why I do Sashin. This invitation to welcome, to feel what is arising in the body directly, of seeing what it's made of, the emotional tones of the six realms each contain an awakened energy that is discovered through being with the sensations directly. You can discover this for yourself, but traditionally they say that in the hell realm, so when anger is really strong, um, anger is transmuted into clarity. And craving in the hungry ghost realm into compassion, ignorance in the animal realm into spaciousness, the human realm, the fear and the the dualities of the human realm, the fear and hope, hope and fear is transmuted into non-discrimination, non-duality, jealousy in the jealous God's realm into empathetic joy and pride in the Deva realm into bliss or appreciation. But those are just words, whatever you notice arises or doesn't arise when you investigate the nature of suffering is perfect. Awareness is all-inclusive. It allows for these these various energies, the energies of the six realms, the energies of human experience to arise, to have a place in our awakening process. And it's through turning toward what we often would just as well ignore or push away, through allowing what is arising to arise and being willing to feel it directly, that we discover for ourselves the truths of impermanence and no self. And we begin to know for ourselves the light and spaciousness of everything that appears. As Unman says, the flaming stars and the empty spaces between them. This is deep work. Please practice self-forgiveness and forgive others too, especially those of you who are here in the Sashin container. Please forgive others too. We can start to project our negativity onto others. Um, I have a really clear memory of doing this when I was working in the kitchen and grabbing a hot pan and then blaming the person who was standing next to me who was just washing a dish. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's how we do that. Like, our, oh, my pain is hard to work with, my tiredness, it's her fault, it's his fault. He shouldn't be walking so loudly or using so much condiments. <laughs> <laughs> Because you judged people for that, too. (laughs) Please practice forgiveness and kindness.
for others. This is your Sangha. We're supporting each other and directly facing the depths of our hearts. This is beautiful and harrowing work. It's hard work. It's rewarding work. So please support each other with your kindness, your compassion, and your generosity of spirit. Thank mm-hmm. you.